I'm Duncan McNichol. And I'm Dominic Norberg. And this is another episode of... It's not exactly rocket science. Which is our podcast, uh, where we talk to people who do research. Um, that is not exactly rocket science, um, because we think, perhaps naively, that we might have a chance at understanding people who, who are talking about rocket science. Me, maybe even a bit more than you, and I'll tell you why. Because growing up in Germany, it's way more common for everyone to do fireworks on New Year's Eve. Ah. Like everyone wow you start at i don't know six years old or something and obviously it's not just rockets but it's also rockets yeah so and so you've got that rocket experience oh man like rocket propulsion is just part of my culture because that that experience um is the thing that's important right so we don't have experience of biology we don't have an experience of social science we don't have experience of psychology because we don't have that experience um we uh we often struggle as much as anyone else would even though we're scientists um to understand that science um and uh we've got another example of that for you today um in the form of rachel jack who is um at the university of glasgow um again we're doing this over the internet so we should just let her introduce herself i think here we go okay so um i'm rachel jack and i'm a reader at the University of Glasgow. Um, so that means that I'm a, a full-time researcher um, and I work within the Institute of Neuroscience and Psychology. Uh, so as a researcher, I spend most of my time answering big questions, um, in, particularly in, in my field, which is nonverbal social communication. So this is really trying to understand how humans uh, communicate with each other using uh, facial expressions or uh, or body movements, gestures, things like that. So non-verbal communication. And so this really relies on understanding human vision. So um, how do people see signals in others and how do they interpret them? Uh, so I'm really interested in how humans use these non-verbal visual signals to transmit information to other people and how other people interpret them based on um, knowledge that they've acquired from their culture. So oftentimes when people try to um, communicate across cultures, you don't have a common language, and so we rely a lot on nonverbal aspects of communication. Uh, and it's often thought that these, this aspect of communication is universal, that facial expressions are universal. But in fact, there's a number of differences, and this can um, mean that people have communication difficulties when using nonverbal communication. So um, my research is really in trying to um, understand exactly what those signals are. So how do you use your face to convey certain messages? And then what is it about that particular facial expression that causes other people to um, misinterpret it? So um, the very first thing that I thought of, it may be the same very first thing that Dominic thought of. The, the, the way Duncan is grinning, which adds another layer to this, I think I know what he's talking about. Um, is that it seems ironic that of, of all the people that we could have talked to uh, over the internet where we can't see your face, we chose you. Jackpot! I was thinking exactly <laughs> the same. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I guess there's going to be very little nonverbal communication <laughs> happening here. But, um, but brilliantly, at, at our end there, and this is um, very bad for podcasting, but there was quite a lot of nonverbal communication <laughs> happening between myself and Dominic. Um, also, so also add to that, that last time we did a phone interview, we also talked about the fact that when we do interviews, and not over the phone or Skype or something similar, um, the conversations generally are quite different in that everyone will talk more 
in one go, like in one one long sentence, whereas I think it's more chopped off and, you know, you interrupt each other a little bit more when mm. you're sitting in the same room. Um, but I guess, you, yeah, you introduce the interruption with your facial expression or your hands or you lean forward or you lean back and then, you know, the on the other side, someone's already, okay, I think someone's coming, something's coming, I'll end with this sentence. I think that's a really good point, actually, because uh, when we, say, talk with the phone or when we, you know, we're interacting in this way, so we're not face-to-face, is that we are actually removing a really big dimension of communication. That's the visual signals that we rely on. Um, and we can even tell uh, when we're in these, in these situations that communication is a little bit more difficult. It feels, you know, it doesn't feel natural, doesn't flow as well. Um, and this is uh, something that's been experienced on the telephone because we're really narrowing the communication channel or removing an entire dimension from it, um, which uh, is actually quite unnatural because what we're used to doing is being able to see people, being able to hear people, and to use this multimodal information to very smoothly navigate the quite complex social uh, interactions with, with, with one other person or more than with one other person. So I think it's actually quite um, interesting that when you use a phone or interact in this way, just how important um, non-verbal signals really are, because you can kind of feel that it's not as smooth as it, as it usually is. And the other thing is that humans uh, are have a very, very strong visual capability. So we're really visual creatures. We really rely on a lot of uh, visual signals. And when that's taken away, we're a little bit less competent in our social communications. It sounds like what you're saying is um, if you have someone who maybe um, loses part of, part or all of their sight, then that will affect them sort of socially. Is that is that what you're driving at there? I think, um, I don't know so much about that field, about people losing their vision. Um, because I, I, I study people with uh, typical vision. Um, uh, okay. Whereas I think that people, this is just speculation, but I guess that people who do lose a, a, a sensory capability, whether it's hearing or vision, it's likely that they would rely more on another on another sense and be much more sensitive to to information that's communicated via that channel than we would be with a multimodal um, okay. set of set of senses. So um, yeah, I, I, I'm I deal primarily with people who have typical vision. Um, and the the way that vision differs for me is across different cultures. Um, so if we have one facial expression uh, and we show this to people in different cultures, it's, it's likely actually that they perceive them in different ways. So they can see them fine, of course, but it's really about their interpretation or their perception of it could be quite different. So when you say you, you look at it across cultures, are you um, does that mean that you're, you're traveling around a lot? Does it mean that you're finding people who um, have possibly come you know grown up in another culture but ended up in the uk or like how do you how do you go about that that aspect of your research so we actually do all of our testing uh, at glasgow university um, so we um have studied primarily easterners and westerners um, and the east asian people that we um, invite to participate in our research have just arrived um, in the UK for the first time. They tend to be students that are attending the university. So we're, we're actually very strict with our, our criteria, our inclusion criteria. 
um, because we have to make sure that when we are testing East Asian participants, they haven't been in Western culture um, for too long a period of time such that it would start to um, sort of change how they perceive facial expressions. So we're, we're quite lucky in that we have a very international campus and we have a lot of people from different cultures visiting and uh, working in the, in the university um, and who are arriving for the first time. So there's other researchers, of course, that do sort of more field work and they would travel to other cultures, and uh, maybe more remote cultures like Papua New Guinea. Um, I have a colleague, Carlos Crivelli, who frequently travels to these locations to test people um, on similar questions. But we, we do all the testing um, on campus here. So there's not too many exciting foreign trips for me. <laughs> <laughs> Just the usual conferences and whatnot, I guess. Although I imagine conferences on nonverbal communication must be interesting. Um, uh, just... <laughs> uh, I guess conferences are conferences in general are pretty interesting because you have um, um, uh, a really great opportunity to see all of the main people in your field at, at one at one time and have the opportunity to spend time with them and talk to them. And that's something that uh, we don't really get enough of, actually, on a day-to-day basis at work because we're just so busy doing other things. And, and what we really need is, is fodder for uh, research, research questions, and how to tackle research questions is really interacting with other people and picking their brains and bouncing ideas off them. So this is a, a really valuable thing for, for researchers. So going to conferences is... Um, usually in nice places, which is lots of fun, but uh, very productive from a work perspective as well. How did how did you end up in this line of research? Ah, that's a, that's an interesting question. So, um, I I started a PhD, um, uh, and the question that I was interested in at the time was about what's called the other race effect. Sorry, can you repeat that? The? It's called the other race effect. And the, okay. other, the other race effect is a very robust psychological phenomenon that uh, occurs in every uh, group of people. And this is that we are much worse at recognizing uh, people from another race or ethnicity. Uh-huh. And so, um, unless unless you have been living and working in a country, or um, so you're, you've built up expertise, we're generally um, quite poor at recognizing discriminating between people. So it's this idea that they all look the same, such as yeah. they all look the same, and this works both ways. So it's that oh yeah, all white people they look the same, yeah? and this is yeah. a really robust phenomenon. Um, and so we're really interested in, so how, how does this happen, right? So, uh, because faces are variable, are variable within each race, there's not, you know, some, some um, you know, it works both ways, so there must be enough variance in faces for people to that are different. So this is a currently unresolved question. So um, I, we started a, an eye-tracking study and uh, to understand where people were looking on the face when they were recognizing faces and when they were also... Mm trying to decode their facial expressions as well. Because there's some theories about um, us decoding facial expressions in a different way when the per- person is of a different ethnicity. And so we actually um, expected for people's eye movement patterns, or fixation patterns, to be different um, depending upon the, the face that they were looking at. So if it was 
the same race or other race based their fixation pattern change. Um, however, we didn't find that at all. We found that the fixation patterns differed according to the culture of the participants. Oh, okay. That's so, interesting. It's a pretty classic um, finding out things by accident in science. Like people, people say this is a romantic myth, but it's actually more true than uh, people uh, think. So um, we really found robust differences between the cultures of the participants and nothing to do with the faces that we're looking at. And so then we got to thinking about you know, why this might be, and we also looked at the performance of participants, and we found that um, while Western participants were really good at recognising their facial expressions, because we were studying facial expressions at this time, the East Asian participants were not very good at some of the facial expressions. But what was really curious was that uh, the facial expressions we were using were these so-called universal facial expressions, the ones based on Darwin's work and Ekman's work, the facial expressions that are widely known even in popular uh, popular books and wider society. These are universal gold standard facial expressions. We thought there's something gone wrong. Um, you know, the, the effect was really robust. And so um, I went back to look at the literature again, and I found, uh, yeah, actually, East Asian participants, when tested on these facial expressions, do show significantly lower performance for some of the facial expressions, for example, uh, fear and, uh, uh, and disgust. And that, for some reason, this had not really been reported, but it was in every single paper that I found, all the way back to... Ekman seminal 1969 science paper where it really famously reported that facial expressions are universal and these facial expressions are the universal ones. Uh, so then I um, realized that um, there was a knowledge gap there, that this, this, this difference just simply hadn't been reported um, and that it should be highlighted more that the, the facial expressions are not well recognized and also to try to understand why why this is. Why why should they not be recognizing these facial expressions? Because of course, in their societies, they can of course recognize these emotions. It's not as though they can't recognize fear. That's, that's kind of crazy. Mm. Uh, and so that is where really I started my research career in investigating why do East Asians not recognize these so-called universal facial expressions? Um, and so this um, started a set of experiments for me, which then led us to show that these facial expressions actually were Western facial expressions. They weren't um, uh, pan-cultural, and that actually these emotions are represented by facial expressions in, in, in very different ways. And we had, we had a method to um, model facial expressions that convey these, these emotion, emotions and then be able to point out the differences between the Western facial expressions and see the East Asian facial expressions. So how, how, how do you go about your research in the sense that, um, like I assume you look at loads of pictures or videos that you do interviews maybe, but like, do you have to, or do you have a way of quantifying facial expressions? And in, in the back of my mind is um, like reading articles or seeing videos on machine learning and computer vision and how that's a big topic in computer vision is 
to recognize faces. Like, you know, you go through um, automatic passport control at the airport or things like that and how people try to trick a system and how we can easily see through a disguise and all that kind of stuff. So um, facial expressions or facial recognition in machine learning seems to be a big thing. Um, but I don't think that there is consensus on how to quantify or, or there, there are different methods to quantify um, like the arrangement of eyes and mouth and so on. But how do you quantify not only where the eyes are, but also what they are expressing and how they are in relation to the mouth and the nose and the brows and everything? Okay. So, um, so first of all, I'll tell you about the approach that we use to understand how the face transmits social messages. That's really what we're interested in. We see the, we see the face actually kind of more from an engineering perspective in that you have a transmitter, the face, and it transmits information in a particular way. So we have, it's a visual signal, so it's a visual um, channel, uh, and it has face, you can use face movements to transmit messages. And then uh, the receiver, the person, um, there's a person receiving the message, and then the message is uh, reconstructed from the information that's being transmitted via the signal. So we have a, a transmitter and a receiver, two, two human beings. And so that's what we're really interested in, understanding which facial expression patterns uh, convey a particular message to an observer. Um, so people often think that what we do is that we ask people to come in the lab and make facial expressions, and then we sort of test them out. Uh, but that's not what we do. And the reason why we don't do that is because if you have a facial expression and you show it to people, as they have done in traditional approaches in the field, is that you don't actually know what it is about the facial expression that is transmitting the message. So yeah. you can have a facial expression where you have wide open eyes and a wide open mouth and maybe uh, lowered brows or something. and uh, the person might say anger. But is it just the eyes? Was it the eyes and the eyebrows? Was it just the mouth? So we don't really know when we show someone an image. It's a, it's a kind of a rather ill-posed problem. That we just don't know what it is that's kind of driving that person's behaviour. And that's really what we're interested in. We're interested in understanding what drives human behaviour and be able to point at that. It's that thing that drives human behaviour. can't really do that with images unless you subsample sections of that image to isolate particular features uh, to test them on perception. So what we do is that we um, use a taxonomic system that describes facial expressions. So this, this um, system is called the facial action coding system. Uh, and this uh, uh, can describe all facial behaviors in terms of action units. So action units are just individual facial behaviours, like a nose wrinkler, an eyebrow raise, a lip stretcher, things like that. So these are irreducible um, individual face movements. And the human face can make about 40 to 50 of these um, action units. Sorry, 40 to 50 individual ones? Yes, exactly. The, the human, yes. Okay. So the human face has an incredible capacity to generate... Patterns. 
So, so if you have 50 individual ones, there will be, I don't know, maybe 10 from your mouth or something like that and 10 from your eyes or whatever. Yes. So, so then you have different ways of combining those and that gives you your level of, I, I guess, symbols that you can transmit. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So, um, yes. So you can, the, the face can create, it can generate, uh, a very, very high number of different combinations of these face movements. Um, so it's not just about combining the face movements, it's also about how we combine them. So, for example, we might have action unit 4 and then action unit 10, or we might have action unit 10 and then 4. So there's a, there's okay, yeah. a temporal component to it as well, and these can, depending upon the, the temporal order, these can mean different things to different there's also that the muscles in the face that generate these movements can also be contracted with varying intensity. So again, you have another um, way that the face can um, diversify these face movements. So all taken into consideration about the dynamics, the intensity, etc., and the different action units, this means that the face can generate a huge number of complex dynamic patterns, otherwise known as facial expressions. Um, and that means that the face has the capacity to transmit a huge number of different social messages because each of those patterns in principle can convey a different social message. So what we do is that we have, at the University of Glasgow, we've built a library of these action units. So we've got about, we've got about 40, 45 individual action units. And that means that we can then generate different facial expressions. So uh, we can just take any combination of action units and we can activate them in different ways. We can make the action unit high intensity or low intensity and activate it early or late. And so what we do is that uh, we uh, will create uh, facial expressions, but we'll just randomly select action units. So we, we're agnostic to which combinations are going to be meaningful. And then we show them to observers from a culture. Sorry, is that that's a computer-generated model? So it's well, the action units come from real people. Yeah, but but how do you say that you select a certain a uh, certain combination almost at random and ask people what does this mean? Like, uh, do you then express them yourself and like you, you you practice them, or do you feed them into a computer model of a generic face? Yes, so this would be, it's a computer uh, platform that, that selects, uh, that generates the stimuli, that generates the faces. Right. So the computer platform is designed so that it will randomly select a subset of action units that are biologically legitimate and apply temporal dynamics to each one of those, so it activates each action unit, but also randomly. And then it's displayed on a photorealistic face and the faces are of real people. And so um, we then show these uh, facial animations to people and we ask them to uh, categorize it. We ask them to interpret them. So we say, you know, is it happy, sad, disgust, anger? Choose one of these labels that matches the facial expression that you see. And of course, they can also say, well, it's none of these labels or I don't know. Um, and so this is a, a, what we call a bottom-up approach. It's an agnostic approach because what we're saying is that well, we don't know what combinations of action units 
can be a given message to that person. So let's just try a bunch of different ones and let them choose. And so they will uh, categorize, and we do this many, many times because there's many, many different facial expressions to try. And then after the experiment, we then have a set of uh, facial expression patterns that that person has seen, uh, categorized as happy. And that means that what we can do is we can build a model from those, all of those animations. We can identify the action units and their specific movements that are most and strongly associated with that person's um, perception. So, and that, yeah, and that then that then allows us to um, specifically identify the action units and the, the movements that um, can be a given message. So that, I mean, that sounds like a, a pretty um, thoroughgoing way of, of, uh, of identifying these things. But it has raised one particular question in my mind, which is, um, do you have somewhere a collection of your favorite computer generated fake expressions that don't look like anything but are just funny uh, i don't uh, i don't think so I don't, no, no, no. maybe but, they're not as funny as i imagine them to be yeah maybe it's also like when it's your when it's your job yeah it's like, no, that's, i don't that's know true. i think um, that, i think that i think that those I think a lot of them actually don't look that funny. When, okay. Yeah, which is quite surprising because mm-hmm. there are there are definitely some times when you think, well, you can ask people well, what do you think that is, and they'll say, mm, well, maybe skeptical, maybe this, and they're not really sure. But they never say that's not meaningful. Okay. So, of course, we want to choose the ones where people are sure because we don't want to have a a very lowly correlated representation where we want something that's a good mm. representation of happy or disgust. But oftentimes people will interpret facial expressions in a meaningful way, and even if those movements seem a little bit odd. That's amazing. Um, so uh, I we, still have questions, but but yeah, yeah, we, we really need to let you go. I'm going to now try uh, and summarize what it is that you do, and I apologize for all the things I miss out. Okay. Um, but uh, as far as I understand it, you're, you're doing research into facial expressions. Um, and the way that you do that is by uh, having broken down the way that a, f- a face can express uh, whatever it is that it's trying to express into sort of pieces. Um, you can then uh, use software to um, take those pieces, combine them in different ways and put them onto a photorealistic face that you can then show to people. Um, and basically use people as these, uh, use humans as these, um, amazingly good interpreters of facial expressions to work out which, uh, expression appears to be, um, being expressed. And, um, and then, and then you can look at the correlation between, um, what it is that makes that expression, uh, work, what it is that makes it, it, it communicate. Does that sound right? Yeah, that's perfect. Exactly. That's exactly correct. Yeah. Well, that was interesting. Yes, and I still have questions. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Um, <laughs> well, maybe maybe we should get her back on and, and have another episode one day. Part two. Bam, bam, bam. I think I have loads of questions still because it's so relatable. Oh, like it's... when people talk about stem cells, I know that you know they've they've affected them, my life, yeah. and they've and they still are, and they're affecting your life and everything, but. 
It's not facial expressions, is it? It's, I mean, <laughs> not exactly nonverbal communication. <laughs> we're literally. I mean, yeah, we're sitting here. We're talking, but we're not just talking. All you can hear on the podcast is us is us chatting. But but we're doing tons of extra communication around that as well. Um, and yeah, no, it's just absolutely fascinating. You uh, you didn't tune into this podcast to listen to uh, me and Dominic uh, ask each other questions we don't know the answers to. Yes, um, so we should probably let you go for now um, with our constant and, and unyielding reminder um, that you can always visit our website, not exactly rocketscience.fm. Pass it on if you like it. If you don't like it, really, honestly, if you don't like it, it's episode 14. <laughs> Stop listening to it if you don't like it. Yeah, that'll do. <laughs> okay. Farewell. Peace out. <laughs>